guys soon gonna read chapter eight the carrying of the Argo. with the terrible weight of the ship upon their shoulders the argonauts made their way across the desert following the tracks of the of Poseidon's golden maned horse like a wounded serpent that drags with pain its length along they went day after day across that limitless, limitless land a day came when they saw the great tracks of the horse no more a wind had come up and covered them with sand with the mighty weight of the ship upon their shoulders, with the sun beating upon their heads, and with no marks on the desert to guide them, the heroes stood there, and it seemed to them that the blood must gush up out of their hearts. Then Zedes and Calais, sons of the north wind, rose up, rose up upon their wings to strive to get a sight of the sea up up they soared then and then as man sees or thinks he sees at the month's beginning the moon through a bank of clouds zedes and calais looking over the measureless sand saw a gleam of water they shouted to the argonauts to the argonauts they marked the way for them, and wearily, but with good hearts, heroes, the heroes went upon their way. They came at last to the shore of what seemed to be a wide inland sea. They set the Argo down from her off and over wearied shoulders. They set, let her kneel take the water once more all salt and brackish was that water they dripped their hands into it and tasted the salt orpheus was able to name the water they came they had come to it was a lake that was called after triton the son of nerus the ancient one of the sea they set up an altar and they make sacrifices in thanksgiving to the gods they had come to the water at last, but now they had to seek for other water, for the sweet water that they could drink. All around them they looked, but they saw no sign of a spring. And then they left the, and then they felt the wind blow upon them, the wind that had in it not the dust of the desert, but the fragrance of growing things. Toward where that wind blew from they went. As they went on, they saw a great shape against the sky. They saw a mountainous shoulders bowed. Orpheus bade them halt and turn their faces with reverence toward that great shape. For this was Atlas, the Titan, the brother of Prometheus, who stood there to hold up the sky on his shoulders. Then, when, uh, then they were near the place that, that the fragrance had blown from, there was a garden there. The only fence that ran around it was a lattice of silver. Surely there are springs in the garden, 
said the Argonaut said, We will enter this fair garden now and slake our thirst. Arpheus bade them walk reverently, for all around them, he said, was sacred ground. This garden was the garden of the Hesperides that was watched over by the daughters of the evening land. The Argonauts looked through the silver lattice. They saw trees with lovely fruit, and they saw three maidens moving through the garden with watchful eyes. In this garden grew the tree that had the golden apples that Zeus had gave to Hera as a wedding gift. They saw the tree on which the golden apples grew. The maidens went to it and then looked watchfully all around them. They saw the faces of the Argonauts looking through the silver lattice, and they cried out one to the other, and they joined their hands around the tree. But Orpheus called to them, and the maidens understood the divine speech of Orpheus. He made the daughters of the evening land know that they stood before the lattice where the men reverenced the gods, who would not strive to enter the forbidden garden. The maidens came toward them. Beautiful as the singing of the Orpheus was their utterance, but what they said was a compliment and a lament. Their lament was for the dragon Ladon, the dragon with a hundred heads that that guarded sleeplessly the tree that had the golden apples. Now that dragon was slain with arrows that had been dipped in poison of the hydra's blood in their dragon Ladon had been slain. The daughters of the evening land sang of how a mortal had come into the garden that they watched over. He had a great bow with his arrow he slew the dragon that guarded the golden apples. The golden apples he had taken away. They had come back to the tree. They had come back to the tree they had been plucked from, for, for no mortal might keep them in his possession. So the maiden sang, Hesperi, Erethus, and Ego. They complained that now, unhelped by the hundred-headed dragon, they had to keep guard over the tree. The Argonauts knew of whom they told the tale, Heracles, their comrade. Would that Heracles were with them now. The, the Hesperides told them of Heracles, of how the springs of the garden dried up because of his plucking the golden apples. He came out of the garden, he came out of the garden thirsting. Nowhere would, could he find a spring of water. To yonder great rock he went. He smote it with his foot, and water came out in full flow. Then he, leaning on his hands, and with his chest upon the ground, drank and drank from the water that flowed from the rifted rock. The Argonauts looked to where the rock stood. They caught the sound of water. They carried Medea over. And then, company after company, all huddled together, they stooped down and drank their fill of a good clear water. With lips wet in the water, they cried to each other, Heracles! Although he is not with us in every truth, Heracles has saved his comrades from death of thirst. They saw his footsteps printed upon the rocks, and they 
follow them until they led to the sand where no footsteps stayed. Heracles, how glad his comrades would have been if they could have had the sight of him then. But it was long ago, before he sailed with them, that Heracles had been there. Still hearing their complaint, they turned back to the lattice, to where the daughters of the evening land stood. The daughters of the evening land bent their heads to listen to what the Argonauts told one another, and seeing them bent to listen, Orpheus told the story about one who had gone across the Lupian desert, about one who had, who was a hero like unto Heracles. The Story of Perseus Beyond there, where Atlas stands, there is a cave to where the strange woman, the ancient daughters of Phorcus, live. They had been gray from their birth. They have but one eye and one tooth between them, and they pass the eye and the tooth to one another. Then, when they would see or eat, they were called the Gerai, these two sisters. Up to the cave where they lived, a youth once came. He was beardless, and the grab he wore was torn and travel-stained, but he had a shapely, uh, shapeliness, and he had shapeliness and beauty. In his leathern belt, there was an exceedingly bright sword. His sword was not straight like the swords we carry, but it was hooked like a st stickle. The strange youth with the bright, strange sword came very quickly and very silent up to the cave where the Gerai lived and looked over the high boulder into it. One was sitting munching acorns with a single tooth. The other had the eye in her hand. She was holding it to her forehead, looking to the back of the cave. These two ancient women, with their gray hair falling over them like thick fleeces, and with faces that were that that were only forehead and cheeks and nose and mouth, were strange creatures truly. Very silently, the youth stood looking at them. Sister, sister, cried one of who was munching acorns. Sister, turn your eye this way. I heard the stir of something. The other turned and with the eye placed against her forehead, looked out to the opening of the cave. The youth drew back behind the boulder. Sister, sister, there is nothing there, said one with the one with the eye. Then she said, Sister, give me the tooth, for I would eat my acorns. Take the eye and keep watch. The one who was eating held out the tooth, and, and the one who was watching held out the eye. The youth darted into the cave, standing between the eyeless sisters, and he took with one hand the tooth, and with the other the eye. Sister, sister, have you taken the eye? I have not taken the eye. Have you taken the tooth? I have not taken the tooth. Someone has taken the eye, and someone has taken the tooth. And they stood together, and the youth watched their blinking faces as they tried to discover who had come into the cave and who had taken the eye and the tooth. 
Then they said, screaming together, Whoever has taken the eye and the tooth from the Gerai, the ancient daughters of Phorcreus, may Mother Night smoother him. The youth spoke, Ancient daughters of Phorcreus, the uh, he said, Gerai, I would not rob from you. I have come to your cave only to ask the way to a place. Ah, it is immortal, immortal, screamed the sisters. Well, mortal, what would you have from the Gerai? Ancient Gerai, said the youth. I would have told me, for you alone know where the nymphs dwell, guard the three magic treasures, the cap of darkness, the shoes of light, and the magic pouch. We will not tell you, we will not tell you that, screamed the two ancient sisters. I will keep the eye and tooth, said the youths, and I will give them to one who will help me. Give me the eye and I will tell you, said one, and give me the tooth and I will tell you, said the other. The youth put the eye in the hand of the one and the tooth in the hand of the other, but he held their skinny hands in his strong hands until they should tell him where the nymphs dwelt who guarded the magic treasures. The gray ones told him. Then the youth with the bright sword left the cave. As he went out, he saw on the ground a shield of bronze, and he took it with him. To the other side of where Atlas stands, he went. There he came upon the nymphs in their valley. And they had long startled to see a stranger youth come into their hidden valley. They fled away. Then the youth sat on the ground, his head bent like a man who is very terrible. The youngest and fairest of the nymphs came to him at last. Why have you come? And why do you sit in such a great trouble, youth? said she. And then she said, What is this strange single sword that you wear? Who told you the way of our dwelling place? What name have you? I have come up here said the youth, and he took the bronze shield upon his knees and began to polish it. I have come here because I want you, the nymphs who guard them, to give me the cap of darkness, the shoes of flight, and the magic pouch. I must gain these things. Without them, I must go to my death. Why must I gain them if you will know my sto- from my story? Then, when he said that he had come from the three magic treasures that they guarded, the kind nymph was more startled than she and her sisters had been startled by the appearance of the strange youth in their hidden valley. She turned away from him, but she looked again, and she saw that he was beautiful and brave-looking. He had spoken of his death. The nymph stood looking at him pitifully, and the youth, with the brown shield, laid beside his knees, and the strange hooked sword lying across it. He told her, her his story. I am Perseus, he said, and my grandfather, men say, the king uh, is king in Argos. His name is Archrysius. Before I was born, a prophecy was made to him that the son of Danae, his daughter, would slay him. 
Arcasius was frightened by the prophecy, and when I was born, he put my mother and myself into a chest, and he sent us adrift upon the waves of the sea. I did not know what terrible peril I was in, for I was an infant newly born. My mother was so hopeless that she came near to death. But the wind and the waves did not destroy us. They brought us to a shore. A shepherd found the chest and opened it and brought my mother and myself out of it alive. The land we had come to was Seraphus. The shepherd who found the chest and who rescued my mother and myself was the brother of the king. His name was Dictus. In the shepherd's walled house, my mother stayed with me, a little infant, and in that house I grew from babyhood to childhood, and from childhood to boyhood. He was a kind man, this shepherd Dictus. His brother Polydectus had put him away from the palace. But Dictus did not grieve for that, for he was happy minding his sheep among upon the hillside, and he was happy in his, his little hut of wattles and clay. Polydex, the king, was seldom spoken of, to about his brother, and it was years before he knew of the mother and the child who had been brought to live in Dictus' hut. But at last he heard of us, for strange things began to be said about my mother, for she was beautiful and how she looked like one who had been favored by the gods. Then one day, when he was hunting, Polydex and the king came to the hut of Dictes the shepherd. He saw Danny, my mother, there. By her looks, he knew that she was the king's daughter and the one who had been favored by the gods. He wanted her for his wife, but my mother hated this harsh and overbearing king, and she did not wed with him. Often he came storming around the shepherd's hut, and at last my mother had to take refuge from him in a temple. There she became the priestess of the goddess. It, I was taken to the palace of Polydectes, and there I was brought up. The king still stormed around where my mother was, more and more bent on making her marry him. If she had not been in the temple where she was under the protection of the goddess she would have wed her he would have wed her against her will but i was growing up now and i was able to give some protection to my mother my arm was a strong one and polydex knew that if he wronged my mother in any way i had the will and the power to be deadly to me one day i heard him say before his princess and his lords that he would wed and and would wed one who was not danny i was overjoyed to hear him say this he asked the lords and the princess to come to the wedding feast they declared they would and they told him of the presents they would bring then King Polydex turned to me, and he asked me to come to the wedding feast. I said I would come. And then, because I was young and full of boast of youth, and because the king was now ceasing to be a terror to me, I said 
I would bring to his wedding feast the head of Gorgon. The king smiled, and when he heard me say this, but he smiled not as good as a man smiles when he hears the boast of the youth. He smiled, and he turned to the princes and lords, and he said, Perseus will come and will bring a greater gift than any of you, for he will bring the head of those gays who turns creatures into stone. Then I heard the king speak so grimly about my boast, the fearfulness of the thing I had spoken of doing came over me, for I, for I thought for an instant that Gorgon's head appeared before me, that I was then and where turned into stone. The day of the wedding feast came, and I came, and I brought no gift. I stood with my head hanging into shame. When the princes and the lords came forward, they showed the great gifts of horses and they ha- that they had brought. And I thought I showed. Uh, I thought that the king would forget about me and about my boast. And then I heard him call my name, Perseus. He said, "Perseus, bring before us now the gorgon's head that you told us." you would bring for the wedding gift. The princess and the lords and the people looked toward me, and I was filled with a deeper shame. I had to say that I failed to bring the present. Then that harsh and overbearing king shouted at me, Go forth, he said, go forth and fetch the present that you spoke of. If you do not bring it, remain forever out of my country, for in Seraphus, he will have no empty boasters. The lords and the and the princes applauded what the king said, and and people were sad for me and sad for my mother. But they might not do anything to help me. So just and so due to me did the words of the king seem. There was no help for it, and I had to go from a country of Serpus, leaving my mother at the mercy of Polydex. I bade goodbye to my sorrowful mother and went from Serpus, from that land that I might not return to without the Gorgon's head. I traveled far from that to, uh, to the country. The one, one day I sat down in a lonely place and prayed to the gods that my strength might be equal to will that now moved in me, and will to take the gorgon's head and take from my name the shame of the broken promise and win back the, to surface to save my mother from the harshness of the king. Then I looked up and I saw one standing before me. He was a youth too, but but I knew by the way he moved and of he was of the immortals. I raised my hand to, in homage of him and he came near me. Perseus, he said, if you have courage to strive and, and the way to win the gorgon's head will be shown to you. I that I had the courage to strive, and he knew that I was making no boast. 
He gave me this bright stickle sword that I carry. He told me by the ways I came, I might come near enough to uh, to the Gorgons without being turned into stone by their gaze. He told me how I might slay one of the of the three Gorgons who was not immortal, and how, having slain her, I might take her head and flee without being torn to pieces by her sister Gorgons. Then I knew that I should have come to on the Gorgons from the air. I knew that having slain the one that could be slain, I would have to fly with the speed of the wind. And I knew that that speed even would not save me. I would have to be hidden in my flight. To win the head and save myself, I would need three magic things. The shoes of flight, the magic pouch, and the dark skin cap of Hades that makes its wearer invisible. The youth said, the magic pouch and the shoes of flight and the dark skin of, cap, of the cap of Hades are in keeping of the nymphs whose dwelling place no mortal knows. I may not tell you where their dwelling place is, but from the gray ones, from the ancient daughters of Forcus, who live in the cave near to where Atlas stands, you may learn where their dwelling place is. Thereupon he told me how I might come to the Gerai, and how I might get to them to tell me where you, the nymphs, and had your dwelling. The one who spoke to me was Hermes, whose dwelling is in Olympus. By this sickle sword, sickle sword that he gave me, you will know that I speak the truth. Perseus seized the speaking, and she who was the youngest and fairest of the nymphs came nearer to him. She knew that he spoke truthfully, and besides, she had pity for the youth. But we are keepers of the magic treasures, she said, and some of whose need is greater even than yours may sometime require them from us. But you, do you swear that you will bring the magic treasures back to us when you have slain the Gorgon and have taken her head? Perseus declared that he would bring back the magic treasures back to the nymphs and leave them once more in their keeping. The nymph who had compassion for him called to the others. They spoke together while Perseus, while Perseus, um, for Perseus, They, they brought to Perseus, and they put into his hands the things that they had uh, guarded. The cap made from the dogskin that had been brought up out of Hades, the pair of the wings juice, and a long pouch that he could hang across his shoulder. And so with the shoes 
of the flight and the cap of the darkness and the pa- magic pouch, Perseus went to seek the gargons. The single sword that Hermes gave him was at his side, and on his arm he held the bronze shield that was now well polished. He went through the air, taking away that the nymphs had shown to him. He came to the oceanus that was the rim of uh, that was the rim around the world. He saw the forms that were living creatures all in stone, and he knew that he was near the place where the gorgons had their lair. Then, looking upon the surface of his polished shield, he saw the gorgons below. Two were covered with hard serpent scales. They had tusks and were long, that were long, and were like the tusks of boars. And they had hands of gleaming brass and wings of shining gold. Still looking upon the shining surface of his shield, Perseus bent down and down. He saw the third sister, she who was not immortal. She had the woman's face and form, and her countenance was beautiful, although there was something deadly in her fairness. The two scaled and winged sisters were asleep, but the third, Medusa, was awake, and she was tearing with her hands a lizard that had come near her. Upon her head was the tangle of serpents, all with heads raised as though they were hissing. Still looking into the mirror of his shield, Perseus came down and over Medusa. He turned his head away from her. Then, with a sweep of a sickle sword, he took her head off. There was no scream from the gorgon, but the serpents upon her head hissed loudly. Still, with his face turned from it, he lifted up the head by its tangle of serpents. He put it into the magic pouch. He rose up in the air, but now the gorgon sisters were awake. They heard the hiss of Medusa's serpents, and now they looked upon their headless her headless body. They rose up the gold, their golden wings, and their brazen hands were stretched out to tear the one who had slain Medusa. As they flew after him, they screamed aloud. Although he flew like the wind, the Gorgon sisters would have overtaken him if, if he had been plain, if he had been plain to their eyes. But the dogskin cap of Hades saved him. For the Gorgon sisters did not know whether he was above or below them, behind or before them. On on Perseus went, flying, toward where Atlas stood. He flew over this place, over Libya. Drops of blood from Medusa's head fell down upon the desert. They were changed and and became the deadly serpents that on these sands and around these rocks on and on Perseus flew toward Atlas and toward the hidden valley where the nymphs were who were again to guard the magic treasures had their dwelling place 
But before he came to the nymphs, Perseus had another adventure. In Ethiopia, which is in the other side of Libya, there ruled a king whose name was Cephas. This king had permitted his queen to boast that she was more beautiful than the nymphs of the sea. In punishment for the queen's impiety and for the king's folly, Poseidon sent a monster out of the sea to waste that country. Every year, the monster came, devouring more and more of the country of Ethiopia. Then the king asked for an oracle that he should do to save this land from his people. The oracle spoke of the dreadful thing that he would have to do. He would have to sacrifice his daughter, the beautiful princess Andromeda. The king was forced by his savage people to take the maiden Andromeda and to chain her to the rock of the sea shore, leaving her there for the monster to devour her, satisfying himself with that prey. Perseus, flying near, hearing, heard the maiden's laments. He saw her lovely body bound into the chains of the rock. He came near her, taking the cap of darkness off his head. She saw him, and she bent her head in shame, for she thought that he would think that it was for some dreadful fault of her own that she had been left chained in that place. Her father had stayed near. Perseus saw him and called to him and bade him tell why this maiden was chained in the rock. The king told Perseus of the sacrifice that he had been forced to make. Then Perseus came near the maiden, and he saw that how she looked at him with pleading eyes. Then Perseus made her father promise that he would give Andromeda to him for his wife if he should slay the sea monster. Gladly, Cephas promised, Cephas promised this. Then Perseus once again drew his sickle sword by the rock to which once again drew his, uh, uh, then Perseus once again drew his sickle sword by the rock to which Andromeda was still chained, he waited for the sight of the sea monster. It came rolling in from the open sea, a shapeless and unsightly thing. With the holes of flight upon his feet, Perseus, uh, with the shoes of flight upon his feet, Perseus rose above it. The monster saw his shadow upon the water and savagely and savagely it went to attack the shadow. Perseus swooped down as an eagle swoops down. With his sickle sword, he had attacked it. He struck the hook through the monster's shoulder. Terribly, it reared up from the sea. Perseus rose over it, escaping its wide open mouth with its terrible rows of fangs. Again, he swooped and struck at it. Its hide was covered all over with hard scales and with the shells of sea things, but Perseus' sword struck through it, and it reared up again, spouting water mixed with blood. On a rock, near the rock was that, that Andromeda was chained to Perseus alighted. The monster, seeing him, bellowed and rushed swiftly through the water to overwhelm him. 
As it reared up, he plunged the sword again and again into its body. Down into the water the monster sank, and the water mixed with blood was spouted up from the depths into which it sank. Then Andromeda loosened. Then was Andromeda loosened from her chains. Perseus, the conqueror, lifted up the fainting maiden, fainting maiden, and carried her back to the king's palace. And said. There renewed his promise to give her in marriage to her deliverer. Perseus went on her, on his way. He came to the hidden valley to where the nymphs had their dwelling place, and he restored them the three magic treasures that they had given him: the cap of darkness, the shoes of light, and the magic pouch. And these treasures. And these treasures were still there, and the hero who can win his way to the nymphs may have them, as Perseus had them. Again, they returned. He returned to the pa- place where he had found Andromeda chained. With face averted, he drew forth the gorgon's head from where he had hidden it, and between the rocks, he made a he made a bag for it. Out of the horny skin of the monster he had slain, then carrying it, he, then carrying his tremendous trophy, he went to the palace of King Cephas to claim his bride. Now, before her father had thought of sacrificing her to the sea monster, he had offered Andromeda in marriage to the prince of Ethiopia, to a prince whose name was Phaethnus. Phaethnus did not strive to save Andromeda. But hearing that she had been delivered from the monster, he came to take her for his wife. He came to Cephas' palace, and he brought with him a thousand armed men. The place of Cephas was filled with armed men, and Perseus entered it. He saw Andromeda on a raised place on the hall. She was pale, and when she and、uh, she was pale as. When she had was chained to the rock, and when she saw him in the place, she uttered a cry of gladness. Cephas, the craving king, who would let him, who would have let him, who had come with the armed men to take the maiden. Perseus came beside Andromeda and made his claim. Phineus spoke insolently. Insolently to him, and then he urged one of its captains to strike Perseus down. Many sprang forward to attack him. Out of the bag, Perseus drew out Medusa's head. It he held it before those who were bringing strife into the hall. They turned to stone. One of Cephas' men wished to defend Perseus. He struck at the captain who had come near. His sword made a clanging sound as he struck, as he a、uh, clanging sound as it struck this one who had looked upon Medusa's head. Perseus went from the land of Ethiopia, taking far Andromeda,、uh, taking the fair Andromeda with him. They went into Greece, for he had for. Thoughts of going to Argos, to the country that his grandfather ruled over. At this very time, 
Archesus got tidings of the fa- uh, got tidings of Danny and her son, and he knew that they had not per- perished in the waves of Ooh, and that had perished of the waves of the sea. Fear, fearful of the prophecy that told he he would be slain by his grandson, and fearing that he would come to the Argos to seek him, to Argos to seek him, Arcasius fled out of his country. He came into Thessaly. Perseus and Andromeda were there. Now one day, the old king was brought to games that were being celebrated in honor of a dead hero. He was leaning on his staff, watching the, a youth throw a metal disc, when something in that youth's appearance made him want to watch him more closely. About him, there was something of being in the upper air. It made Arcasius think of the brazen tower and of his daughter whom he had shut up there. He moved so that he might come nearer to the disc thrower, but as he left there, he had been standing, he had been standing, he came into the line of of the thrown disc. It struck the old man on the temple. He fell down dead, and as he fell, and as he fell, the people cried out his name, Arcrasius, Arcrasius, and Perseus knew whom the disc thrown by his hand had slain. And because he had slain the king, by chance Perseus could not go to Argos, nor take over the kingdom that his grandfather had reigned over. With Andromeda, he went to Seraphus, where his mother was. And in Seraphus, there still reigned Polydex, who had put upon him the terrible task of winning the Gorgon's head. He came to Seraphus, and he left Andromeda in the hut of Dictus the shepherd. No one knew him. He heard his name he heard his name spoken of as that of a youth who had gone on a foolish quest and who would never again be heard of. To the temple where his mother was a priestess, he came. Guards were placed all around it. He heard his mother's voice, and it raised in a lament. Wailed up here, given over to hunger, I shall be made go to Polydelsus' house and become his wife. O ye gods, have ye no pity for Danny, the mother of Perseus? Perseus cried aloud, and his mother heard his voice, and her moans ceased. He he turned around and he and he went to the palace of Polydex the king. The king received him with mockeries. I will let you stay in Seraphus for a day, he said, because I would have because I would have you at the, at a marriage feast. I have vowed that Danny, taken from the temple from where she sulks will be my wife in tomorrow's sunset.
So Pogodek said, and the lords and princes who were around him mocked at Perseus and flattered the king. Perseus went from them. The next day he came back he came back to the palace, but in his hands now there was a dread thing. The bag made from the hide of the sea monster that had in it the bird's head. He saw his mother. He was brought in she was brought in a white in white and fainting. She was brought in white and fainting, thinking that she now would have to wed the harsh and overbearing king. Then she saw her son, and hope came into her face. The king, seeing Perseus, said, Step forward, or youngling, and see your mother wed to a mighty man. Step forward to witness a marriage, and then depart, for it is not right that a youth that makes a promise and does not keep them should stay in the land that I rule over. Step forward now, you with empty hands. But not with empty hands did Perseus step forward. He shouted out, I have brought something for you at last, O king. Present to you and your mocking friends. But you, O my mother, and you, O my friends, avert your faces from what I have brought. Saying this, Perseus drew out the gorgon's head, holding it by the snacky locks that stood be uh, the snacky lots, locks, he stood before the company. His mother and his friends averted his faces, but Polydex and his insolent friends looked full upon what Perseus showed. This youth would, would strive to frighten us with some conjurer's trick, they said. They said no more, for they became as stones, and as stone images, they will stand in that hall and surface. They went into the shepherd's hut, and he brought Dictus from it with Andromeda. Dictus made, he made king in, Polid in Polydex's stead. Then with Danny and Andromeda, his mother and his wife, he went from surface. He did not go to Argos, the country that his grandfather had ruled over, although the people there wanted Perseus to come to them, to be king over them. He took the kingdom of Trinus in exchange for that of Argos, and there he lived with Andromeda, his lovely wife, out of Ethiopia. He had a son named Perses, who became the parent of the Persian people of the Persian people. The sickle sword that had slain Gorgon, the Gorgon went back to Hermes, and Hermes took Medusa's head also. That head, Hermes' divine sister, set upon her shield, Medusa's head upon the shield of Pallas Athene. O oh, may Pallas Athene guard us all, and bring us out of this land of sands and stone, and where the deadly serpents that have come out of the drops of blood that fell from the Gorgon's head. They turned away from the garden of the daughters of the evening land. The Argonauts turned from where the giant shape of Atlas stood against the sky, and they went toward the Tritonian lake. But not all of them reached the Argo. 
on his way back to the ship. Now Pleas, the helmsman, met his death. A sluggish serpent was in his way. It was not a serpent that would strike at one who turned from it. Now Pelias trod upon it, and the, snake, the serpent lifted its head up and bit his foot. They raised him on their shoulders, and they hurried back with him. But his limbs became numb, and when they laid him down on the shore of the lake, he stayed moveless. Soon he grew cold. They dug a grave for Nalpolius beside the lake. And in that desert land, they set up his helmsman or up his helmsman or in the middle of his tomb and heap of heaped stones. And now, like a snake that goes writhing its this way and that way, that cannot find the cleft in the rock that leads it. It to its lair. The Argo went hither and thither, striving to find an outlet from that lake. No outlet could they find, and the way of their home-going seemed lost to them again. Then Orpheus prayed to the son of Nerus, the Triton, whose, whose name was on that lake, to aid them. Then the Triton appeared. He stretched out his hand, and show them the outlet to the sea. The Triton spoke in friendly and wise to the heroes, bidding them to go upon their way in joy. And as for labor, he said, let there be no grieving because of that, for limbs that have youthful vigor should still toil. They took up the oars and pulled toward the sea. The Triton and Triton and Triton, the friendly immortal, helped them on. He laid hold upon the Argo's keel and guided her through the water. The Argonaut saw him beneath the water. His body, from his head down to his waist, was fair and great like to the body of one of the other immortals. But below his body was like a great fish working its way and that he moved with fins that were like the horns of a new moon the triton helped argo along until they came into the open sea he plunged down into the uh, in, down into the abyss the heroes shouted their thanks to him they then they looked at each other and embraced each other with joy for the sea that touched upon the land of Greece was open before them. So that was chapter 8. Bye guys, see you later. See you later, see you later, see ya, see ya later. Bye guys.